Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. We are joined today by Sam Burns. He is the chief strategist of Mill Street Research. Mill Street combines a top-down macro research with a bottoms-up analysis. So in this conversation, we discuss the macro outlook and why the economy is not likely headed into a recession, but instead will likely see slower growth ahead. We also got into a discussion around the markets and why Sam favors equities over fixed income. Now, when I had him on back in February, he was quite bullish on equities, but he explains why he is still bullish, but it is a more normal environment. I really enjoyed this conversation with Sam. I always learn something from him, and I think you will too. Sam Burns, Chief Strategist at Mill Street Research. It is great to welcome you back on the show and great to see you, Sam. Thank you so much for joining me again. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, Sam, a lot of folks, they might be coming to the channel for the first time, so they may have missed your episode, which I believe we had you on for episode 56. And you have a really fascinating approach to research, um, running an independent research shop, Mill Street Research. Um, Can you just walk the folks through real quick before we dive into anything around the economy or the markets, your investment strategy and process? Yeah, no, that's right. I I try to take a... a kind of a combination approach, uh, I think of it as both uh, top down and bottom up. So I'm looking at the macro view, you know, what the markets are doing, what the economy is doing, but then also looking at a lot of the data that I track for individual companies, uh, looking in particular at what analyst earnings estimates are doing as kind of a measure of what the, the fundamentals uh, are, how they're changing um, at the company level, and then looking at industries and sectors as well. So I can kind of get, uh, you know, a, a combined view of what, uh, what's going on in the overall economy, but also at individual companies and industries uh, based on that kind of mixture of data. And a lot of it is is objective indicators, models, uh, things that I've developed over the years, trying to make sure that uh, you know, my own personal biases and, and kind of emotions don't get in the way and to really keep it focused on what the data says uh, and not what I'm just kind of reading in the headlines, which I think is a big, big uh, kind of risk for a lot of investors. Yeah. Like, as you put it, you have the macro view also combined with looking at the companies on that individual level. And I think that's a great way just to level set for the conversation for folks. So I am curious what, what maybe what clients are asking you about these days. What are kind of the conversations that are top of mind for you all right now? Well, right now, yeah, it's really kind of the uh, kind of the offsetting effects of um, you know interest rates and the Fed uh, versus corporate earnings, um, and in some ways, it's also monetary policy versus fiscal policy. Um, this this cycle has really gotten a lot of clients kind of thrown off base, um, even than just over the last couple of years, because it's been you know such a strange cycle post COVID, uh, in that we've had you know an enormous amount of volatility in the economy and in earnings. Uh, and it's now starting to settle down a bit, but you've got the Fed tightening monetary policy aggressively, while at the same time, fiscal policy is actually quite stimulative and supportive. And we really haven't seen that combination for many, many years. And a lot of clients really don't quite know how what to do with that because um, they're seeing earnings hold up pretty well and the economy hold up well, even though the Fed's raised rates you know, as aggressively as they, almost as, as they ever have. And normally they kind of focus on the Fed. They think, well, if the Fed's raising rates, that's bad, and you should, you know, avoid stocks, and the economy's going to go into recession. But that hasn't happened, and I think it's because fiscal policy and a lot of the kind of secondary effects of COVID have kept that from happening. Uh, but that's very unusual, and so a lot of clients are really trying to figure that out and see, you know, how to play that. 
And so I think a lot of them came into the year too cautious uh, about stocks and about the economy and have now started to adjust that to, to see that, well, yeah, actually the economy is holding up pretty well. And even the Fed has tried to have been had trouble figuring that out. And just last week, they seemed to kind of move in the direction of figuring that out and, and adjusting their own forecasts. Yeah, because when I had you back, on, I think I had you on in February, um, you were bullish on, on stocks and certainly the, um, quite the call, if you will. I, I am hearing um, more of that macro picture for you. Would you mind just kind of setting the table, if you will, on the macro? What is the macro view for you today, that framework, if you will? Sure. So um, so at the macro level, you know, I'm seeing, uh, you know, better than expected uh, economic data. Um, that the earnings surprise. I mean, the economic surprises have been positive, both in terms of growth, uh, you know, spent consumer spending, the labor market have all been much stronger than people thought they were going to be at this point, um, and also inflation has been coming down, um, as you know, I, I kind of anticipated, but that has been going, I guess, better than a lot of people have expected, um, even though some of the, the the current you know year over year numbers are still somewhat elevated. I think most of the the things that should happen are happening. Um, I think, and part of the reason is that the inflation data is somewhat lagged because of the way they uh, incorporate housing costs, essentially. Um, but I think, aside from oil kind of going up recently, I think the inflation trend is going in the right direction. Um, so I think that's a, a good sign. It means that the Federal Reserve is probably, you know, at the end of its tightening cycle now. Even if they might keep rates higher for longer than people were expecting, uh, they don't think they'll go any higher than they already have. So to me, monetary policy is starting to shift to become less of an issue. Uh, I think earnings and fiscal policy are really going to be the key factors to watch at a macro level. And even even just in the next week, if we have a government shutdown, um, things like that can can affect uh, the economic data and, and what we're seeing. Um, I think the uh, potential for student loan repayments to pick up again, you know, is another factor that might impact consumer spending. So those are all kind of the big picture macro views. Uh, that I'm looking at, also seeing global growth, you know, in Europe or particularly in China, kind of slowing down, you know, not really being a source of growth uh, globally. Um, so again, I don't think the problem is going to be too much growth. I think, um, you know, as we go into next year, it'll it'll be, uh, you know, too slow a growth. It will be the concern. But right now, I think it's more a balance between, uh, you know, supportive fiscal policy and, and tight monetary policy. Mm. I want to hear more on the fiscal policy side of things. I guess the um, the the balance between the fiscal and the monetary. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Sure. So, um, so the kind of the, the simplest way to measure fiscal policy, in my view, is just the uh, the U.S. federal you know, Treasury federal deficit as a percentage of GDP. So, I need to scale it um, to to relative to the size of the economy, and uh, that's running around seven to eight percent of GDP right now, which is pretty uh, high. I mean, it's a relatively high deficit, which means it's stimulating the economy putting money into the economy, and particularly in terms of infrastructure and uh, things like that. So the uh, infrastructure bills, Infrastructure and Jobs Act, the CHIPS Act, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act that we were passed in the last year or two, we're all having their impact on the economy now over, over this last year or so. And we're seeing that particularly in you know, a lot of industrials companies, um, a lot of technology companies, and to some degree, consumer companies are all benefiting from that. Uh, all those factories being built, uh, whether it's electric vehicle plants or fiber optics or uh, roads and bridges, all those things are uh, part of that sort of fiscal support. In addition to the fact that higher interest rates because of the Fed means that the federal government is paying out more in interest. All the people who own treasury bonds are getting more interest now than they used to. And that's an additional source of uh, kind of stimulus for the economy in some ways. 
So there's a lot of those factors that are adding money to the economy that are supporting activity. Uh, they're helping to counterbalance the reduced activity caused by higher mortgage rates, higher auto loan rates, higher credit card rates that are coming from all the tightening that the Fed has done. Uh, so to me, that's really the, the key factor is that the, the federal uh, fiscal policy, the, the deficit and the form that it's taking in the form of infrastructure spending in particular is really helping to, uh, to support the economy and offset uh, what would normally be you know, a slowdown caused by tighter monetary policy. Mm-hmm. Do you think, um, do you expect a slowdown? Because yeah, like caused by tighter monetary policy, I get you point out the fiscal support. Do you expect do you, a, a slowdown? And if so, when and what might that look like? Yeah, I think it'll be a kind of a gradual slowdown. I think that fiscal policy, uh, we're seeing the effects of you know policy that was already passed in the last year or two. But now that the politics have changed, I think there'll be much less of that, if any, uh, going forward. Uh, so I don't think there'll be any big new uh, programs or stimulus of things to really drive things um, like we've seen in the last year or two. So I think as these kind of uh, existing programs have their effect or priced in and kind of kind of slow down over the next, uh, say, six to 12 months, we'll start to see that in the data. I think things like, say, student loan uh, payments picking up again and uh, things like labor uh, you know, strikes as well as um, the uh, you know the impact of um, the government shutdown that might happen next week, uh, which hopefully will be a short-term thing, but uh, we, you never know; those things can drag on sometimes, depending on the politics. Those are all going to be headwinds, um, and I still like to say uh, the rest of the world uh, is kind of slowing down as well, uh, particularly China. And so I think those are going to be you know net kind of uh, headwinds for the economy. So I think it'll be a more of a gradual thing than a sudden falling off a cliff. Uh, but I think it will start to get back to sort of slower growth as we get into the uh, middle of next year. Mm. You mentioned the government shutdown. How how are you thinking about that scenario? I imagine you're getting questions about it as well. Um, can you explain your thoughts there? Right. Well, and it certainly has a lot of uh, similarities to the, uh, the debt ceiling pro- uh, showdown we had earlier this year, all the other government shutdowns we've had over the years. Um, it's all, you know, obviously political. Um, there's not actually a lack of money at the, at the federal level to, to spend. It's just a matter of uh, the politics and kind of stunts and things. So I think it um, will have a, a near-term effect. It could potentially throw off some of the economic data, both the actual uh, activity and the collection of the data. If the uh, you know the, if the statistics you know bureaus get shut down for a while, it'll make it harder to actually collect the data. Um, so it will, it will muddy the waters um, for a little while. Uh, if it doesn't go on for, for too long, if it's a week or two, then that probably won't have much effect. If it goes on longer than that, then that will have more effect. Um, but again, some of it is spending that will get delayed. Um, once the, it stops, the money that was going to be spent will, will probably be spent anyway. So uh, so it's not a big picture long-term trend, but it does kind of show you the, the still the noise and the volatility that's uh, being caused by politics in the underlying you know economic activity. Yeah. Um, another area you mentioned was inflation, um, and I want to hear more of your thoughts there because we have seen energy prices go back up, but it sounds like you think inflation is kind of headed in the direct, right direction. Can you explain your thought process there? Sure, yeah. And again, that's another area where the data is very noisy. It's, it's, it's hard to get a clear read, certainly on the month-to-month data. But to me, um, the, the worst of the inflation really peaked uh, around the middle of last year, You know, July or so of 2022. Uh, after um, not only all the COVID impacts, but the Russia's invasion of Ukraine had driven up commodity prices dramatically. 
Uh, that all kind of peaked around the middle of last year and has been generally slowing since then. Not that prices are falling, but that the rate of inflation has been coming down. And uh, you see that most directly in, in commodity prices uh, overall. Uh, and really, uh, recently, you mentioned oil prices has kind of diverged from the rest of their commodity kind of uh, uh, prices uh, overall, including things like natural gas. And that's really being driven almost entirely by OPEC and Russia, uh, restricting supply intentionally to drive up prices. Uh, and they've done several steps of that, uh, trying to restrict price, uh, restrict output to, to raise prices. And they finally managed to, to get prices to go up some uh, as a result of their supply restrictions. But most other commodities, um, whether it's you know copper and you know metals and things, or uh, you know food prices, most of those are still kind of flat to to lower uh, recently. And so, to me, it looks like uh, most prices are still kind of stable or, or declining. And oil is kind of the, the the outlier. And again, that's really just just OPEC driving that uh, output from the U.S. and from non-OPEC countries has actually been increasing, uh, and, and partly offsetting what OPEC has done. And to the extent that that continues, then, then I think that the oil prices will eventually kind of normalize and come back, come back down a bit again. So I don't think oil is going to be a, a long-term problem. I don't think you know six months or a year from now it's going to be a whole lot higher. Uh, I think it's more of a short-term issue, and I don't think it's indicative of a broad-based inflation problem. Uh, I think most prices for goods have still been you know coming down. Services are t- taking longer to come down, but uh, that's where people are spending their money. Uh, you know, after COVID started, everyone's bought goods and stopped buying services because they couldn't. And now they've kind of cut back on goods buying so much and, and going out to hotels, restaurants, you know, concerts, all that kind of stuff. And that's where the money is being spent right now. And um, people have the money to spend from their labor income. It's not coming from excessive borrowing so much as it is from just their paychecks, which have been going up. So that's, to me, a more better, sustainable way for spending to be to be driven and is less inflationary than if it was driven by credit, uh, excessive credit. And that's what we're seeing you know, this cycle. So to me, uh, the general trends are still towards slowing inflation. Um, the uh, housing costs that are embedded in the CPI um, that get a lot of attention, those are lagged by construction, meaning they, they tend to sort of reflect what's happened over the last 12 months, not what's happening right now. And so I think as that data catches up to where rents and home prices are right now, You'll see the uh, the inflation data continue to to slow, and to get closer to where the Fed really wants them to be around kind of two to two and a half percent. Do you think we'll get there to two two and a half percent? I think so. Um, I think um, if you look at the CPI, excluding housing, excluding the shelter costs, everything else except for housing, it's actually already at two and a half percent. Actually, it's a little bit below that. Um, so, except for the the housing costs, which we know have a lag in them. Um, inflation is already at or below the Fed's target. And actually, the producer price index, uh, which is the wholesale kind of business inflation measure, that's actually been close to zero lately. Um, so it's actually already below 2% itself. So some of those kind of more leading measures that don't have the lags in them are already there very close to or below where the Fed wants them to be. Um, so in my mind, that tells me that it's really some of these lagged effects of on housing and the uh, kind of short-term volatility caused by oil that are really the only things that are holding up the overall inflation numbers. So in, in a lot of ways, inflation is already there. It's just not quite showing up in the data yet because the data has these lags in it. And the Fed, I think, knows that. A lot of people kind of are seeing that. And that's why when you look at um, the uh, financial markets where you can actually bet on inflation, there's inflation swaps, 
um, that institutions use to actually bet on the level of inflation, CPI inflation, over the next year or two years, five years, whatever you want. Uh, those have all been hovering right around 2.5% recently. So the markets are not priced for more inflation. They're assuming that it will get back to that kind of 2.5% level pretty soon uh, based on what the data is already showing and what it's likely to show, given what, that we know that rents and things have already slowed down quite a bit from where they were, say, last year. Got it. Okay. Um, so also just like on the Fed, um, higher for longer, is that your, do you also, I guess, do you have that view as well that we're higher for longer here? I think so. Yeah. At least certainly longer than what the bond market had been anticipating just even a few months ago. Uh, you know, the bond market had been anticipating, you know, a num- quite a number of rate cuts, you know, starting next year. And I think that they'll, they're having to price that out and say, well, maybe there won't be so many cuts or hardly any cuts. Um, and then the Fed's adjustment uh, last week at their meeting, they raised their own projection for their own policy rates for next year, um, I think from 4.6% at the end of 2024 to 5.1%, which is not really very far below where they are right now. So I think they're moving in that direction, assuming that the economy will actually avoid recession uh, for a while and that um, it will allow rates to stay higher uh, for longer. Now, you know, the Fed can be wrong too. And I think the, the market can get, you know, kind of move in, in, in either direction too far. Um, I think you might get some rate cuts next year, but I think it'll be more a matter of bringing rates down to where, you know, a 2% inflation rate would be more consistent with. Um, five, five and a half percent is pretty high for, for policy rates if you think inflation is two and a half percent. So I think, you know, four or something would be probably more plausible um, in terms of a, of a, of a, regu- of a real rate. Uh, but I think that it'll take a little while to, to, to get there you know, in terms of the market sentiment. So I think we'll have to go through this period of kind of uncertainty about what the Fed's really going to do versus the way their kind of hawkish messaging is, is staying. I think they're, they're very intent on making sure that they stay, their messaging stays hawkish and stays uh, focused on inflation, even if their actual policy activity really won't do anything. Probably, I expect they'll probably keep rates where they are for a number of months now um, before they, they do anything new. Um, so I think it'll be kind of the message says one thing, but the actually activity says something else. I think that's what the market's having to adjust to now. Yeah. Um, okay. So, and earlier in the conversation too, like you mentioned, um, like more of a gradual slowdown in the economy. Do you not do Do you not see the recession scenario? I, I have like such a diversity of guests with different opinions. So I would love to hear your thoughts. Like, do you think we avoid a recession? Do you think we'll see one? Not see one? Just your, curious your thoughts there. Yeah, I'm not currently expecting a recession, um, certainly in the next, say, six to 12 months, you know, kind of the normal forecasting horizon. Obviously, eventually we'll have a recession someday. Um, and I think most of the recessions that we're used to looking at over the last, say, you know, 20 or 30 years have been driven by a combination of tighter monetary policy and tighter fiscal policy. That it's really those policy changes um, that drive the recession. And then there's some cases like 2008 where, you know, the regulatory backdrop and, and leverage and those kind of things were, were much worse than they are now. And so it made the recession worse than it otherwise would have been. But I think that um, we're probably going to avoid recession as long as fiscal policy has at least some, you know, supportive, you know, impact and can offset monetary policy, which is what we're seeing right now. I think that can continue for a little while longer. The risk really is that fiscal policy suddenly changes and becomes much tighter uh, if, if Congress decides to really, you know, cut spending or, uh, raise taxes, things like that, that would then 
raise the odds of a recession coming you know, more quickly. Um, I think that uh, the, the job market and the you know the, the wage income and things like that will continue to gradually slow, but there's still you know a fairly tight labor market. I don't think that's going to change you know, suddenly, and that's kind of where consumer spending really comes from. I think that's still still pretty good, um, and so I don't think that there's there's going to be a reason for the economy to go in recession unless there's what I think of as a policy mistake, meaning if they over tighten either fiscal policy or monetary policy. And either cause a banking problem or cause just sudden show, stop of uh, fiscal support. Uh, so I don't see that right now, but it's certainly a risk. And certainly given where Congress is right now, that's probably the bigger risk that I see you know, going into next year. Yeah. How about the consumer? You mentioned the consumer um, and obviously tight labor markets. Um, and what is your assessment of the strength of the consumer? Because that is such a critical part of GDP is the consumer. Well, absolutely. Yeah. No, and I think that's been the, the key driver for both the U.S. and actually really the world, um, that the U.S. consumer is, is driving things and allowing other countries to you know, export to the U.S. and, uh, and keep their own economies going. Um, so I think it has been a combination of uh, you know, kind of lack of labor supply uh, post-COVID uh, from a combination of just the impact of COVID itself, you know, limited immigration during and after, right after COVID, um, has meant that, that there's more competition for workers and uh, and the companies are now having to sort of uh, pay up a little bit more for labor relative to what they've done you know pre-covid um, and so I think that's you know a good sign and certainly the the thing that all the strikes and kind of labor issues we've seen with the auto workers or the or the writers and and, and the actors in, in uh, Hollywood um, but but even beyond that a lot of other areas you're starting to see more unionization and more uh, you know labor issues. And that's the direct result of the fact that um, there's not a surplus of labor like there used to be, and that uh, employers are having to, to, to pay up to get uh, labor and, and keep it. Um, and so I think that's, you know, we balance the economy a little bit, uh, and given uh, consumers and wage earners a little bit more um, to, to spend and, and a little more support uh, relative to uh, what we saw, you know, pre-COVID. I think that that's a good thing overall in the sense that it balances the economy. Um, it might reduce uh, income inequality a little bit. Uh, the economy tends to do better when there's, you know, somewhat less uh, inequality. When uh, kind of the, the middle or, or lower incomes have more money to spend, it tends to get spent, um, and so that's generally better for economic activity. Um, so I think that those are all kind of longer-term structural factors that are are, are still in favor of consumer spending and uh, and the employment market. Yeah. Well, Sam, we've certainly covered um, the the ground when it comes to the economic picture. Let's move into markets. I want to give you some time. We can also set the table here. We can have you kind of give your views, um, your big picture views. We can do like equity markets, fixed income, other asset classes. So let's start there. Sure, sure. Yeah. So I guess at the, the big picture level, um, I still prefer uh, equities over fixed income. Um, and then within the fixed income markets, um, I've been underweight uh, bonds, meaning longer term, long duration bonds, and, and favoring uh, cash, you know, money markets, short term, T-bills, things like that uh, for a long time now. I think I actually went underweight bonds in late 2020 um, and have been progressively more so uh, over the last year or two um, just because... Uh, you know, both the way the economy's developed and the fact that interest rates were so low back then um, means that the fixed income, particularly long duration fixed income, has been unattractive for some time and it still is. Bonds are in a bear market uh, by almost any measure and really one of the worst ones they've been in for, for many, many years. 
Um, so I think that's kind of been the backdrop of uh, what what people thought of as being safe, meaning treasury bonds uh, from an actual return perspective, from an investment perspective, have not been. Um, and so I think equities have outperformed bonds uh, this year by a wide margin. And uh, I think that may continue for a while longer until interest rates really get to the point where they've priced in all the things that the Fed is going to do and that uh, earnings start to slow down. Uh, so I think that earnings are growing um, and that they've been better than expected uh, over the last two or three quarters. So that tells me that equities have the tailwinds over, over fixed income. Uh, and in an inflationary environment and one where the economy is doing better than people expect, equities are really where you want to be. Um, so I've been overweight equities and underweight bonds and really focused on uh, things like technology, uh, consumer and industrials as kind of the, the parts of the equity market that are seeing the, the strongest support and that are benefiting from the consumer and from the uh, fiscal policy. Got it. Well, okay. I have I have so many questions. Okay. On um, the fixed income side of things, I would love to just hear more on that. Um, you're talking about being underweight bonds as of late 2020 um, and talking about like the long duration um, fixed income, like I heard a bear market in there. Um, and I've also heard people talk about like that we might be facing a duration crisis, maybe for, um, let's see, like maybe for folks who aren't necessarily like, expert or follow um, that space. Can you just elaborate a bit more? Like what is going on when it comes to fixed income? Right. Well, and it's been... <laughs> Uh, a volatile and kind of confusing uh, period here for really a few years now, um, and a lot of it, you know, started of course with COVID, when the uh, Federal Reserve, you know, really got aggressively involved in the bond market uh, to prevent all the disruptions from COVID, and, uh, and and pushed interest rates very very low, and at that point, um, you know, the idea of buying a long term bond, you know, ten year bond or a thirty year bond, at a you know one or one and a half percent interest rate. Um, you know, became very you know unattractive. Um, be, you know, once you realize that the economy was not going to fall apart, that the uh, all the fiscal support, all the stimulus checks, and everything else that happened after COVID, and then after that, all the infrastructure spending and everything else has meant that um, you d that the economy was not going to go into recession, and that uh, inflation was going to be higher for a little a little while, and it you know went up for quite a bit, and now it's coming back down again. Those are all things where you really don't want to own long-term bonds that pay low interest rates. And that's what you were faced with uh, you know, back in 2020 and 2021. And in fact, that's actually what got a lot of the banks, um, the Silicon Valley Bank, and a lot of those regional banks that got into so much trouble earlier this year, that's what they did. They bought long-term treasury bonds um, in 2020 and 2021, and that, those were on their balance sheet. Those bonds have all fallen in price by 20, 30% in some cases. And so if you're a bank and you're, you know, Levered to some degree, that's those are those are big losses, and that's why some of them have, have had trouble. Um, and if you're a bond investor, whether you're in a mutual fund or an individual investor, you know that's those are you know very negative returns you're getting from bonds. Even though most people think of bonds as being safe, and maybe you don't make much, but you never really lose much. But if you own long-term bonds, you may be down fifteen or twenty percent on those holdings over the last two or three years, and so that's a that's a tough thing to to look at. If you're, you know, thinking about a kind of a balanced portfolio between stocks and bonds, you think you think bonds will be the safe part, and they're not. Um, and so um, that's why I think it's important to think about duration and fixed income. Meaning, if you're going to own a longer-term bond, a ten-year bond or, or longer, um, you're taking more risk. 
those bonds can really move around a lot in price if interest rates change. And that's what's happened. Uh, you know, a bond that might have been priced at you know a hundred dollars, you know, bond is now might be trading at, at eighty, and um, so that's risk in some ways. It's it's almost like a, a owning stocks uh, over the last couple of years, and so it's really not as safe as you as you would have thought if interest rates are low and potentially going to go up, and that's what we're seeing. And we just we just didn't see that for a long time. It's been years and years since we've really seen interest rates go up like this. So most people had almost forgotten that that could happen. And that the Fed would would move as quickly and aggressively as they did to raise rates. Um, that's been again at least since 2005 to 2007 was really the last time they tried to raise rates that fast, and uh, and it wasn't even as bad as this. So uh, bonds do have risk if you own long term bonds, and that's why you know I've been saying that owning shorter term bonds, you know maybe a, a three month bill or a one year you know note or something like that or money market funds, you know those are not going to lose you money you know that to that degree. You're mostly just going to collect your interest and that's all, um, which again, over the long run, doesn't make you a lot of money, but it's much safer in the short term if you think rates might rise um, and the economy is not going to go into recession, which is what's happened here. Got it. That is okay. This is so interesting to me. So I love this show so much because I get to talk to experts like yourself and learn because uh, so duration risk, like that's the interest rate sensitivity. And um, for about a decade, you had zero interest rate policy. So that really had not become an issue until you saw like the rate hikes and not only that, but like the speed of those rate hikes. So does it matter? So I suppose, does this matter like when you bought those longer term bonds, like the 10 year or the or 30 year? Does it matter when? Or like, what if you bought it today? Like what I'm just, maybe these are naive questions, but they are kind of just bubbling up for me. Just curiosity. Like I guess for the folks who bought in 2020, not so great. How about today? What does that look like? Or what would, what would be the risk there? No, you're right. It very much depends on, on when you, you would be buying the bonds. And if you bought them in 2020 or 2021, yeah, you're, you're in rough shape now in the sense that you're sitting on those kind of losses on the price of the bonds. Now, the treasury bonds, and eventually you'll get your money back. You're not going to default. It's just that you know interest rates are much higher now. So the price of the bond you bought uh, when interest rates were lower, is just it's worth less right now. Now, if you're buying bonds today, you'll certainly get a much better deal. Um, you know, today the ten-year Treasury is yielding four and a half percent, not one and a half percent. So, looking forward from today, you're in a much better place to buy a bond now than you would have been, say, two three years ago. Um, now, that doesn't mean that if you buy a bond today, that if rates go from four and a half to five, or five and a half percent over the next, say, six months or a year. You could still see, you know, a little bit more loss on on the pricier bonds for a little while, but that'll be a much less risk now than it would have been um, in the last couple of years. So, um, so definitely the risk has been reduced for bonds uh, to buy them buy them now in long duration. Except I, I wouldn't tell a client say go put all your money into long duration bonds right now because they're such a great deal. But I think they're a much better deal now than they used to be, and so uh, so I think you're getting closer to the point where you might want to allocate more towards bonds, but I'm still underway, kind of waiting for a better opportunity. I think there's the, the risk that because people have been selling bonds and rates have been going up for months now, there might be kind of that trend might continue for a little while longer, but maybe it's only a few more months uh, before things start to shift. Uh, and I think if you start to see economic data get weaker than expected, can come in, you know, come in lower than expected, then you start to see interest rates kind of top and the, the risk to bonds start to kind of really go down and you might be more uh, willing to be exposed to that long duration risk. But for now, you can get five and a half percent 
five to five and a half percent in a, in, a, in a money market fund for for almost no risk. So for now, that's a safer bet. Uh, you can get a good yield and not have to take any real you know risk in in the duration. Um, and so that's kind of the, a better deal than than long term bonds would be right now. Uh, but you know maybe six months from now that'll that'll look different. Yeah. Well, speaking of equity markets, the last time I saw you, you were bullish on equities. Can you kind of frame up and contextualize where you stand um, as relates to markets? Because we we did see equities perform well in the first half of the year, and I know there was a lot of pessimism back in 2022. Just curious, like where you stand today on equities and maybe more of the sentiment. Yeah, that's right. And really, for the stock market, that was really the big story of the last year or so. Was 2022? Um, almost everyone I talked to was expecting a recession this year. Right now, actually, that we should be in a recession right now if they were, you know, if that had played out. And uh, they got really negative. They were seeing the Fed raise rates aggressively, and inflation was high, and uh, fiscal policy in, in mid 2022 looked like it was tightening because all the COVID stimulus was going away. And they assumed, well, all the COVID stimulus is stopping and money, the Fed, Fed is tightening. That means recession's coming and earnings are going to fall apart. And so we got to be bearish, got to sell stocks. And that was the, really their view you know, late last year coming into this year. And then it turned out actually fiscal policy kind of turned around and became much more stimulative and the economy did better than expected. And so everyone had to shift their sentiment from expecting you know, doom and gloom, you know, recession uh, coming you know, this year saying, oh, well, maybe it'll be next year or maybe you know, it keeps getting pushed out um, to when that recession is really going to hit. And so I think that's what, why stocks have done better this year and, uh, and even got through that kind of uh, bank crisis problem we saw in March um, that we thought, oh, no, now the banks are going to fall apart. Well, a few of them did, but not all of them, and it wasn't systemic. And again, the, the, the Fed and the Treasury stepped in to, to prevent that. So we've kind of stepped over some of those hurdles that people thought were going to be a problem for the stock market. And now it looks like you know, earnings are actually pretty good. Uh, earnings estimates are rising. Uh, I do a lot of work about earnings estimates, and they're you know stable or higher, um, and not just in the, in the big tech stocks that everyone focuses on, but a lot of companies are seeing their estimates uh, stay the same or, or go up, um, and that's usually a, a good sign, and tells you that um, the economic backdrop is favorable for corporate earnings, generally speaking, and that's you know helping the stock market hold up even though interest rates have gone up. And so to me, I think stocks can, can still outperform bonds uh, for a while longer. I think we're now kind of consolidating some of those gains we saw back in, uh, you know, kind of May, June, July. Uh, but I think we, we have the potential for maybe the fourth quarter of this year to look a little better. Uh, typically, that's when money comes into the market. Um, so I think seasonally, that'll be better. And I think that's, uh, you know, a reason to stay overweight equities, at least for a little while longer and kind of see how things develop. It's mm, interesting. Okay. So, um, Let's hear more on that. Uh, Q4 looking a little better um, from where you stand. Um, because I got, are you as bullish as you were when I last talked to you in February? Or is it just like stocks seem to be the place to be, like they'll outperform bonds, that kind of thing? Um, and I would just want to elaborate a bit more on like some of the drivers. Yeah, probably probably not quite as uh, you know bullish and excited as it was earlier in the year, just because then the, the sentiment extremes were so you know kind of dramatic. Everyone thought the world was going to end, um, and this was true actually in Europe as well, not just in the U.S. Um, and then the world didn't end, and so then they've had to adjust. And now people are certainly more bullish and much less negative about things than they used to be, and that and that includes the Fed, frankly. Um, but and so so there's not as much kind of readjustment of sentiment 
to to go than than where we were, say, at the beginning of this year. Um, but yeah, that doesn't mean necessarily the time is now the time to sell stocks. I don't think people have gotten excessively optimistic. And that's really what you look for is kind of that pendulum to swing from being excessively pessimistic, which we were say in January, February, to being excessively optimistic, which is probably where we were in like early mid twenty twenty one. Uh, if you remember, you know, after the Fed had you know cut rates and all the stimulus money was going out and everybody was very excited, the market had gone up a lot. Then we could start to see real signs that there was too much optimism and people were too um, had too high of expectations about the economy and the stock market. And that's when we started to really see then you know anticipate maybe uh, things were not going to turn out that well. Um, and so right now, I think things have kind of gotten back to kind of more normal expectations. Um, you know, not as bearish as they were, but not overly bullish. And so to me, as long as the underlying fundamentals are still pretty good, stocks can still do okay and, and do better than bonds. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It's probably not quite the dramatic, uh, you know, kind of extreme that we saw earlier in the year uh, that would say that there's a lot of room to go for sentiment. Uh, now there's probably a little less room to go, but still some. Yeah. And you were also mentioning like parts of the market you want to be in. And I think I heard you say um, tech still, consumers and industrials. Can you elaborate more on where you want to be? I don't know how specific you can get, um, but if you can, let's get specific. Yeah, that's right. No, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, individual stocks, I, I tend not to want to pick too much um, uh, just because different people have different, um, you know, financial needs, but also uh, things can change about the individual name sometimes. But the broad themes that I've been seeing uh, have been, yeah, technology, uh, industrials and consumer areas have been uh, where really the relative strength in the earnings have been. Um, and that areas like, for instance, commodities um, and uh, healthcare and some of the more defensive areas uh, are, are, are have been kind of lagging and just haven't kept up with the strength in some of those, uh, those more cyclical areas. And so I think part of that reflects the you know, infrastructure spending, um, the, the industrial areas in particular, machinery and building related things, anything related to manufacturing, those kind of things. Have, have had a lot of uh, tailwinds. Uh, home builders have held up way better than everybody expected to uh, because most people don't want to sell their existing homes. They're willing to buy new homes. So the home builders are still building. Uh, and then technology, a lot of software services and even some of the hardware makers are still doing well. Uh, AI, of course, is the big thing in technology uh, still. Um, and so I think there's a lot of uh, companies who are focused on that and are spending money on it. And a lot of... Uh, uh, earnings there still. We're seeing earnings estimates, you know, uh, rising for a lot of those companies, and so that tells me that there's still a fundamental tailwind for them. Even though some of the stocks have had big runs and might have gotten ahead of themselves, some of the really big cap, you know, popular tech names. I think there's still a fair number of those that have good fundamentals that could be bought, you know, on these kind of pullbacks where we see, um, you know, stocks correct a little bit. Um, those are still areas that might have uh, some upside going into the fourth quarter this year or first quarter next year. Uh, because I think they've still got, that's where companies are looking to benefit from, uh, you know, new spending on uh, efficiencies and things like that related to technology and all that money coming from uh, federal infrastructure spending is still flowing through the economy into the industrial side of things. And that's where uh, I think there's still some pretty good um, support uh, for earnings uh, into those you know, specific areas that are benefiting from either kind of AI related stuff or, or infrastructure. Yeah. Well, speaking of, um, you know, equities and you favor equities over bonds, what do you think about the traditional 60-40? 60, 
Is that dead? Is that a thing of the past? No, I think that's still going to be kind of a, a benchmark for, for many investors. I think, you know, if you think about the 60-40, what would be the alternative? It'd either be all stocks or all bonds or some other assets, um, which, uh, you know, probably aren't going to be necessarily applicable to most investors, uh, whether it's, you know, commodities or alternatives or real estate or something like that. So um, I think, you know, to me, like I said, I've been overweight equities on a kind of a uh, cyclical basis recently. Uh, so I've been, you know, more than 60% equities, more like 75% um, and underweight bonds. So maybe, you know, instead of being 40% in fixed income, I've been 30 or, or 20. But um, the idea of a 60-40 as a benchmark, I think, still makes sense longer term. But I think you really have to be able to, you know, deviate from that at times on a cyclical basis uh, to take advantage of, you know, the dislocations or kind of distortions in the market. And that's what we've seen over the last few years was that uh, interest rates were kind of, you know, bonds became abnormally unattractive in 2020 and 2021. And then now have become, you know, more attractive, but not too attractive yet. Um, but you still have to have that 60-40 as kind of the benchmark to, to, to move around from. Um, and so uh, to me, I think there'll always be a, a room for uh, bonds as kind of the ballast or the kind of the safe component, an income-oriented component of the portfolio. But at times, you know, that's just not going to work well. And so certainly 2020-21 was one of those times. Uh, I think we're getting back to more normal times when you can get you know, a reasonable expected return from bonds uh, and from stocks. And so something closer to 60-40 will look better. And actually, the 60-40 portfolio has done better thanks to stocks. Um, so over the last, say, six to 12 months, uh, a typical 60-40 will, will, you know, will show a positive return. Um, but it's mostly because of the, of the, the stock part of it uh, has really you know, recovered well and, and not so much the, the bond portfolio lately. Noted. Well, Sam, I'd say it's been great having you on. I want to give you a few moments if you want to let no folks know um, more about the work that you all do at Mill Street Research. I know you all have an institutional focus, but I believe you all have a newsletter um, as well. And any parting thoughts, anything that didn't come up in this conversation um, around the economy or markets that you'd like to share, please take a moment to do so. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, and uh, certainly... Um, you know, millstreetresearch.com is the website. There's examples of the work. Uh, there's a blog on the website that it gets updated periodically. Um, and yeah, there's a, a, a report we put out uh, called Weekly Roundup, which is more focused on, uh, you know, uh, individual investors or maybe small investment advisors who want to get a feel for what uh, the work I do looks like and kind of get some of the highlights of it uh, from asset allocation we we're talking about, as well as uh, the stock selection work that I do. Um, and so that's just, you know, it's a $50 a month. So it's much less expensive than the, uh, what, what institutional investors pay to get the work. Uh, that's on the website as well. And then on Twitter and on LinkedIn, I, I'll typically post comments about the macro outlook or sectors or stocks. Um, so you're interested in kind of seeing how I look at things and examples of the work. Uh, you, know, you can follow Mill Street Research on both Twitter and on LinkedIn. Well, Sam Burns, Chief Strategist of Mill Street Research, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. Really appreciate you coming on. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Julia. Thank you.